Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Maybe a little deeper than usual today. So come on close to the radio. Ladies and gentlemen, a little news from outside the bubble first. As I'm sure you have heard by now, maybe the um, conservative party led by Boris Johnson achieved a stunning, historic victory in the British election on Thursday last week. And there's all sorts of analysis now in the British media about how this could have happened. Here's a clue. The Liberal Democrats had a party platform of opposing Brexit. Their leader lost her seat in Parliament, and they, as a party, lost big. The Conservatives had a platform of getting Brexit done, and they, as I say, won an historic victory. And the Labour Party, the main opposition party, had a policy of, well, we're not for Brexit and we're not against it. And, gee, they had a historic loss. Yeah, I know, it's, it's hard to tease out exactly what's happening there. But I'd like to tease out something else on the subject. As I say, the Conservatives won just a, a, a huge victory. I think it was the Labour Party's biggest loss since the 1930s. And, of course, that would be reflected in the public opinion polls the media shared with us in the days coming up to Election Day because it's such a major victory. That would be shown in, oh, wait, no. Here's what was actually in the media from the polls coming up to Election Day. Latest UK poll, Labour narrows gap with Tories to six points. Final general election model, small conservative victory. Tory lead narrows in latest poll. Ipsos poll shows coalition narrowing gap with... Oh, no, sorry, that's another time and another place. General election polls boost for Labour as Tory lead shrinks. Tory lead cut as race enters final hours. They had no clue it was going to be an historic victory for the cancer. Yet, who is on the air to explain the conservative victory? Pollsters. We got to stop this. <laughs> you know, nobody answers the phone at dinner, at dinner time anymore when they call. So they patch a, um, a statistical approximation of the public into the results they get. We, we really, we could cut down, at least on our news watching, by just, if they say the latest poll, that's it, that's done, that's over with. Good night. Ratings down. Now, ladies and gentlemen, something remarkable happened this week, and it had nothing to do with impeachment. The Washington Post published a series called The Afghanistan Papers. Uh, I think the analogy to the Pentagon Papers was not accidental. This is a series of reports based mainly on interviews with officials in both the Bush and Obama, and I think some in the Trump administrations as well, 
regarding the conduct of America's longest war. And it is remarkable. And impeachment sort of just managed to shove it right out of the news. So uh, I'm going to shove it right back in on today's edition of Hello, Welcome to the Show. According to a cache of government documents obtained by the Washington Post through two lawsuits in hundreds of confidential interviews that constitute a secret history of the Afghanistan war, U.S. and Allied officials admitted they veered off in directions that had little to do with Al-Qaeda or 9-11. By expanding the original mission, they said they adopted fatally flawed war-fighting strategies based on misguided assumptions about a country they did not understand. The result, an unwinnable conflict with no easy way out. Quote, If there was ever a notion of mission creep, it is Afghanistan, unquote Richard Boucher, 
who served as the State Department's top diplomat for South Asia from 2006 to 2009. He added, quote, We have to say good enough is good enough. That is why we're there more than 15 years later. We're trying to achieve the unachievable instead of achieving the achievable, unquote. In unusually candid interviews, officials who served under Presidents Bush and Obama said both leaders failed in their most important task as commanders-in-chief, to devise a clear strategy with concise, attainable objectives. Diplomats and military commanders acknowledged they struggled to answer simple questions like, who is the enemy? Whom can we count on as allies? How will we know when we have won? James Dobbins, a career diplomat who served as a special envoy for Afghanistan under both Bush and Obama, told government interviewers it was a hubristic mistake that should have been obvious from the start. Quote, First, you know, sort of just invade only one country at a time. I mean that seriously, unquote Dobbins. Quote again, they take a lot of high-level time and attention and will overload the system if we do more than one of these at a time. Unquote. Obama's strategy was also destined to fail. U.S., NATO, and Afghan officials told government interviewers that it tried to accomplish too much, too quickly, and depended on an Afghan government that was corrupt and dysfunctional. Worse, they said Obama tried to set artificial dates for ending the war before it was over. All the Taliban had to do was wait him out. The U.S. military acknowledges the Taliban is stronger now than at any point since 2001. But there's been no comprehensive public reckoning for the strategic failures behind America's longest war. No Afghanistan version of the 9-11 Commission. No Afghanistan version of the Fulbright hearings when senators aggressively questioned the war in Vietnam. No Afghanistan version of the Army's official 1,300-page introspective history of the war in Iraq. Jeffrey Eggers, a retired Navy SEAL and White House official under Bush and Obama, said few people paused to question the very premise for keeping the U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Why did we make the Taliban the enemy when we were attacked by Al-Qaeda? He asks. Why did we want to defeat the Taliban? Collectively, the system is incapable of taking a step back to question basic assumptions." Unquote. In a Lessons Learned interview three years ago, U.S. Special Envoy Zalmi Khalidzad acknowledged that by refusing to talk to the Taliban early on, the Bush administration may have blown a chance to end the war shortly after it started. Quote, Maybe we were not agile or wise enough to reach out to the Taliban early on, that we thought they were defeated and that they needed to be brought to justice, rather than that they should be accommodated or some reconciliation be done." Unquote. Khalil Saad, who is now two years into talks with the Taliban. Other officials said the Bush administration compounded its early mistake with the Taliban by making another critical error, treating Pakistan 
as a friend. The Bush White House was slow to recognize that Pakistan was simultaneously giving covert support to the Taliban, according to the interviews. Quote, Because of people's personal confidence in Pervez Musharraf, the then president of Pakistan, and because of things he was continuing to do to help police up a bunch of the al-Qaeda in Pakistan, there was a failure to perceive the double game that he starts to play by late 2002, early 2003, unquote, Marin Strumeski, a senior advisor to Rumsfeld. Quote, I think that the Afghans and President Karzai of Afghanistan himself are bringing this up constantly, even in the earlier parts of 2002. They're meeting unsympathetic ears because of the belief that Pakistan was helping us so much on Al-Qaeda. There is never a full confronting of Pakistan in its role supporting the Taliban, unquote. When the Obama administration took over, General Stanley McChrystal conducted a strategic review. Obama had declared the goal of the war was to disrupt, dismantle, and defeat Al-Qaeda, but the first draft of McChrystal's strategic review did not even mention Al-Qaeda because the group had all but disappeared from Afghanistan, according to a NATO official involved in the review. Another jarring disconnect was that the United States and its allies could not agree on whether they were actually fighting a war in Afghanistan or doing something else, the NATO official said. Quote, There are big implications with calling this a war. Legally, under international law, that has serious implications. So we checked with the legal team, and they agree it's not a war. Unquote. McChrystal added a line in his report that said the conflict was, quote, not a war in the conventional sense, unquote. The Obama administration just thought, if you just hang in there, Pakistan will see the light. That was according to a former White House official in 2016. In a separate interview in 2015, another unnamed official complained that the Obama administration would not let U.S. troops attack Taliban camps on the Pakistani side of the border. Then U.S. Ambassador Ryan Crocker talked to Pakistan's intelligence chief, quoting Crocker. And he says, You know, I know you think we're hedging our bets. You're right. We are. Because one day you'll be gone again. It'll be like Afghanistan the first time. You'll be done with us. But we're still going to be here because we can't actually move the country. And the last thing that we want with all of our other problems is to have turned the Taliban into a mortal enemy. So yes, we're hedging our bets." Unquote. Then, Congress and the White House made matters worse by drenching the destitute country with far more money than it could possibly absorb. The flood crested during Obama's first term as president as he escalated the number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan to 100,000. Quote, During the surge, there were massive amounts of people and money going into Afghanistan. Unquote David Marsden a former official with the U.S. Agency for International Development. Quote, 
It's like pouring a lot of water into a funnel. If you pour it too fast, the water overflows that funnel onto the ground. We were flooding the ground." Unquote. A lesson not learned from other recent U.S. wars. Your 
Afghanistan papers. The U.S. government has not carried out a comprehensive accounting of how much it has spent on the war in Afghanistan, but the costs are staggering. Since 2001, the Defense Department, State Department, and the Agency for International Development have spent or appropriated between $934 and $978 billion, according to an estimate adjusted for inflation, calculated by Nita Crawford, a political science professor and co-director of the Costs of War Project at Brown University. Those figures, incidentally, do not include money spent by other agencies, such as the CIA and the Department of Veterans Affairs. The documents also contradict a long chorus of public statements from U.S. presidents, military commanders, and diplomats who assured Americans year after year that they were making progress in Afghanistan and that the war was worth fighting. Several of those interviewed described explicit and sustained efforts by the U.S. government to deliberately mislead the public. They said it was common at military headquarters in Kabul and at the White House to distort statistics to make it appear the United States was winning the war when that was not the case. Quote, Every data point was altered to present the best picture possible. Unquote Bob Crowley. Army colonel who served as a senior counterinsurgency advisor to U.S. military commanders in 2013 and 14. Quoting again, surveys, for instance, were totally unreliable, but reinforced that everything we were doing was right, and we became a self-licking ice cream cone. Unquote. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction John Sopko, head of the agency that conducted the interviews reflected in the Afghanistan papers, acknowledged to the Washington Post that the documents show, quote, the American people have constantly been lied to, unquote. And now the apologies of the week, ironically enough. Dayline Tokyo, Japanese artists hired to promote 
Walt Disney Company's movie Frozen 2 on Twitter said they were instructed to hide the fact that they were paid for the work. That contradicts Disney's initial explanation that the omission was accidental. Quote, the agency that hired us for this campaign requested that we not label our work as a promotion, said an artist who publishes under the name Kosame Daizu in a tweet. He uh, tweeted last week the cartoon in which he depicted some characters in Frozen 2 and removed the movie, reviewed the movie favorably. He didn't respond to requests for comment. Other artists involved in the campaign also apologized. Disney initially said it had intended to ask the artist to show that the tweets were part of an official advertising campaign and it called the absence of a disclosure a lapse. But on Wednesday, Disney issued a new statement I guess delapsing, acknowledging repeated cases in which artists were hired to promote Disney movies on social media without disclosure. Some of the artists who endorsed Frozen 2 had earlier published cartoons on Twitter promoting Disney movies such as Avengers Endgame and Captain Marvel. 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 Without mentioning a connection to a company promotion. Hey, Captain Marvel. Marbles. That's a mini... Disney said the Frozen 2 case and similar examples were caused by failure to comply with inertial internal marketing guidelines. It didn't say who failed to comply or why. It was Mickey. It was Minnie. Australia's Commonwealth Bank says it'll pay an additional... 25 million Australian dollars to current and former employees who were found in a review to have been underpaid, and its chief executive apologized for, quote, past errors, past errors. To date, the bank has uh, notified, repealed, repaid, sorry, approximately 41,000 current and former employees. The bank said it in a filing. We view this as completely unacceptable. said uh, a spokesperson for employees. Oh, that's... Sorry, that's from another story. Their many money will be paid at the completion... That's hence my confusion. Be paid at the completion completion of the review of this fiscal year. It's unacceptable that some of our people were not paid the correct settlements, entitlements. This should never have happened, and I apologize to anyone impacted by these past errors, said Chief Executive Officer Matt Cornyn. The admission further soured the bank, standing with Australians after a powerful royal commission which submitted its report earlier this year exposed wrongdoings in the finance sector. Imagine that. The CBA, the bank, becomes the latest company down under to to admit it underpaid workers after the country's biggest grocery chain, Woolworths, in October said it underpaid thousands of supermarket workers. But these were errors, and certainly there are a lot of workers who are over. Tommy Calloway, the runner who slapped a reporter's backside on live TV last weekend, has come forward and is apologizing for his awful act. Calloway is a 43-year-old youth minister. He said that he acted out of character when he groped WSAV TV reporter Alex Bozargian during her live coverage of a run in Georgia on Saturday. I was getting ready to bring my hands up and wave to the camera to the audience, and there was a misjudgment in character and decision-making. I touched her back. I did not know exactly where I touched her, he told Inside Edition. 
I bet um, Garrison Keeler knows where he touched her. Or Al Franken. Bazurgian shared the moment of the incident on Twitter and said she is visibly shocked after, oh, actually, she is visibly shocked after Callaway touches her. You violated, objectified, and embarrassed me, she wrote on Twitter. No woman should ever have to put up with this at work or anywhere. Do better. Callaway says, I agree totally, 100% with her statement. Do better. That's my intention. I feel horrible, he said. That was before he was busted for it. Now he feels really terrible. Okay, here, here come slavery-related apologies. Imagine that. A worksheet asked fifth graders in a school in uh, Oakville, Missouri, to think like colonial traders, deciding how much they'd charge for bushels of grain, bags of apples, and jars of turpentine. And human beings were the final product, needing a dollar value. Set your price for a slave, the four-page paper instructed, leaving a blank for children's picks. It added a hint, quote, these could be worth a lot. Parents quickly brought the assignment to leaders at Blades Elementary School in Oakville. They apologized for a culturally insensitive exercise, placed the teacher on leave, and promised new training for staff across the campus. Families and community members blasted the St. Louis school's teaching tool as absolutely unacceptable and potentially traumatizing for young people. Teachers, you know, they're not fully thinking the assignment through. They're trying to do something more than just give the kids a textbook said Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. But, Thomas wondered, would anyone suggest role-playing a genocide? Well, Dateline, Kannapolis, North Carolina. The Kannapolis city school system has apologized to a parent after a child was given a homework assignment that the system says was inappropriate. The parent posted the assignment on social media. It was given out by a teacher at Kannapolis Middle School asking students to compare the values of slaves with white people. How many slaves would be needed to equal at least four white people, one of the questions asks. How many slaves would you have if you equaled one and four-fifths whites? The student told the mother that the history teacher told us every black person is three-fifths or some percentage of a white person, unquote. Thank you for bringing this assignment to our attention, the school system responded in a social media post. In addition to reaching out to you personally to apologize, we're posting here on behalf of Kannapolis City Schools to say we agree the assignment was not appropriate. We've taken steps to address it and make sure it doesn't happen again. We're very sorry. We expect and promote racial equality and racial equity in our schools. This assignment did not meet that standard or expectation at all. We're working to help make sure it won't happen again. We hope you'll accept our sincere apology and reassurance that we're responding swiftly to correct the situation. I think the teacher has been um, placed in a shed by now. We apologize to the parent personally, says uh, a spokesperson for the schools. The principal talked to her. The superintendent talked to her personally to reach out and apologize. According to the three-fifths compromise in the Constitutional Convention, three out of every five slaves in the United States were counted as people for the purpose of determining a state's population, taxation, and representation. But, you know, it's hard to teach that. When an American Airlines crew member asked Swati Rooney Goyal to get her things and follow him out to the front of the plane during her late October flight from Florida to Nevada, 
She thought she was getting upgraded to first class. Instead, the 49-year-old Key West woman was told she had to either change her shirt or get kicked off the plane because the shirt she was wearing said, quote, Hail Satan. She is not a Satan worshiper, according to BuzzFeed News, but she is a member of the Satanic Temple, bought the shirt to support the organization. Though it is a recognized church, the Satanic Temple is a non-theistic and non-Satan worshiping religious organization well known for activism on issues such as separation of church and state, free speech, and religious freedom. It's an ironic shirt, Goyal told BuzzFeed News. People usually laugh at it, or they give me a thumbs up. A crew member approached her, told her she had to get off the plane or change her shirt. Our crew has found your shirt to be offensive, he said. Well, according to American Airlines, website passengers are required to dress appropriately and avoid offensive clothing. Without any more detail. The crew members did not let up, delaying takeoff and bringing a customer service agent on board to reiterate she could not fly in the Hail Satan shirt. Her husband gave her his shirt. Sure off his back. We apologize to Ms. Goyal for her experience, and we're reaching out to her to understand what occurred, said a spokesperson for American Airlines. The airline called, offered to refund both tickets, and assured her that an investigation was going through. American has had stuff like this before. In July, it briefly removed a woman from a flight because a crew member thought her romper was too revealing. I haven't seen it. But if it's a romper, it also had numerous incidents involving religious and racial bias, as American Airlines. It's had so many bias incidents when dealing with black passengers that the NAACP issued a travel advisory two years ago warning black travelers against flying American Airlines. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Normally... I I don't do dedications, but sending this one out to American Airlines.
More from the Afghan Papers. Peter Galbraith, a Karzai critic who served as a deputy U.S. envoy to Afghanistan in 2009, was removed from his post after he complained that the United Nations was helping cover up the extent of election fraud in that country. An American, Galbraith told government interviewers that the U.S. government also stood by when Hamid Karzai appointed cronies to election boards and anti-corruption posts. Quote, There was a broader impact because of the culture of dishonesty. You cannot separate administrative fraud from the corruption of the system. He added, The most important point is this. The U.S. and its allies pursued a counterinsurgency strategy in Afghanistan which requires a local partner to succeed. The problem is, there is no partner. The government of Afghanistan is corrupt, ineffective, and as a consequence of repeated electoral fraud, illegitimate. The U.S. never treated the electoral fraud seriously and never understood its connection to the other forms of corruption. Stealing elections is what enabled Afghan politicians to steal everything else. Unquote Galbraith. Galbraith added, in 2010, the U.S. and NATO Anti-Corruption Task Force partnered with the Karzai-appointed Afghan anti-corruption czar, who, a year earlier, had been the Karzai-appointed chairman of the Independent Election Commission that engineered the electoral fraud 
that secured a second term for Karzai. Needless to say, the anti-corruption effort went no place. Unquote. Reeling in the year. 2019, the year in rebuke. From Afghanistan Public Radio, nobody gives you more ways to give. From the abandoned American television truck in downtown Kabul, you can distinguish it from uptown Kabul because it's downhill. <laughs> I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Flick and Flack, the Publicity Brothers. <laughs> Welcome to a very special edition of Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the Afghan Automobile Association, the AAA, your first call for roadside service since early next year. <laughs> <laughs> My younger brother, you called this a very special edition of this program, which mm -hmm. is already very special because it's ours. <laughs> What's different today? Uh, well, my dear junior brother, for the first time in the history of this program, I'm glad you asked me a question. <laughs> <laughs> you read the latest report of the Special Inspector General on our beautiful country? I skimmed it, yes, but I'm a skimmer. <laughs> <laughs> As I recall, he said we need uh, international donations to continue our beloved war, but the presence of the Taliban and the eventual new government would discourage such donors. Mm, that's damn good skimming. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why today's program is our very first war-a-thon. Uh, but we have pledged drives all the time. Maybe even more frequently. <laughs> True, but they just raise money for ourselves. Mm. On this warathon, we're asking for donations to keep the war going, and we'll take them live right here on our program. Ooh, this would mean that anybody who really, truly stands behind our glorious struggle against the people we're going to make peace with should call in and be acknowledged publicly for their contribution, right? No, oh, you read the script as well as I could have. <laughs> so let's get the warathon started. We have nothing to lose but time and money. Hello, you're on Cars I Talk. Greetings, El Presidente, from the great state of Houston. Oh, I recognize that voice. Mm, sounds like the fellow I used to argue with when we were both leaders of our respective countries. <laughs> Hello, Mr. President Bush. Hamid, Hamid I, I can't even remember what we argued about. <laughs> Heck, I can barely remember being president, but I, I do remember respectivating you, and, and Laura and I still do. Uh, Mr. President Bush, this is Mahmoud. Hey, Moody, you still selling those bootleg Toyotas? Uh, they are fresh from the truck, sir. And where the truck comes from, not even Allah knows. <laughs> <laughs> but, sir, yeah. although we love to hear the sound of your voice almost as much as the sound of ours, <laughs> we need to take many calls, so what might be your donation to the country? Continuation of our fine war that I believe you started. Heck, I, I even forgot I did that. Mm. Iraq, I remember because of the thing. Anywho, you fellas know I've, I've taken up painting. Mm -hmm. It's just a language I feel a little bit more at home with than, uh, say, language. I'm donating two of my largest works, a brand new one of me in the bathtub, and mm. then uh, what you might call its mate, mm. just a, a painting of the bathtub itself. Uh, we can auction them off uh, here in Houston and send you the proceeds by FedEx Express. Or, you you know, you could auction them off out there and, and, and save a bundle on the shipping. Ooh, quite an opening donation, Mr. President. We'll figure out the details after the show. Okay, they're out drying in the sun, so just give me a holler. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir, and thanks for the call. 
Well, we certainly are starting off the warathon with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> he actually wrote that. <laughs> Hello, you're Ron Karzai Talk. Hello, this is Nasrullah, a long-time corrupt government official, uh, first-time caller. Ooh, interesting. This caller knows where the truck comes from. <laughs> <laughs> Nasrullah, uh, I assume you're an official of the Afghan government, or you were? I still am. Mm. Uh, presidents come and go, but... But uh, baby still needs new shoes. Hmm. H- how old is that baby now? Forty-three. <laughs> <laughs> so, much as we'd love the pointless banter of our regular format, mm-hmm. this is the Warathon. Why are you interested in donating to the war? Uh, without foreign troops in our country, there is not enough money around to uh, corrupt the poodle. <laughs> I'm doing this in my own self-interest and in the interest of the whole corruption community. I'm donating 10,000 Afghanis. Mm. Uh, just for those listening outside our country, that's money, not people. Although I think Nasrullah would say people are money. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the call. Oh, I think so far we've paid for ten drone attacks and one armed skirmish. Mm. Let's keep the momentum going. Hello, you're on the cars I talk war-a-thon. Hi, uh, this is Barack. Uh, My bracket this year sucked, so, no, I just thought I'd call in. Mr. Barack, thank you for... The call, we miss your undisclosed surprise visits to our country. You know, I, I've made several recent ones, mm. but they were so undisclosed, even I didn't know about them. Sir, <laughs> <laughs> so, perhaps you'd like to share with what's left of our audience why you're donating to help save the war. Well, you know, Hamid, you and I had our little squabbles, <laughs> but I call this conflict the good war during my first presidential campaign. In many ways, I really met it especially in the area of advancing women's rights in your country. We know the Taliban isn't there yet, so a somewhat longer war might, you know, provide time for bringing them out of the Middle Ages. You know what would help, sir? Mm -hmm. Might we use your contribution to hold a nationwide Miss Taliban competition? (laughs) Hey, it's your money, you know, once I give it to you. In any case, I'm donating 10% of the proceeds from my next book, coming out later this year. Really? What's the title? I'll pre-order. It's called... Even I miss me now. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, and thanks for the call. We'll continue to take donations off the air. We have to make way now for Hindu Kush Home Companion. We had help today from our callers and from our country's most exciting Internet startup, delivering new car wheels to your door. Hubhub.com. Legal services for cars I talk from the law firm of Ketchum and Newcomb. I'm Hamid. And I'm Mahmoud. Join us again next time for a semi-regular edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. And now, ladies and gentlemen, allow me to read the trades for you. I'm asking your, you know, your leave... I'm, I'm going to do it. You know that. Facebook says it will use consumer data from virtual reality to target ads. This is from Advertising Agent. I'm going to read it to you. Facebook has notified consumers who use Oculus virtual reality headsets. It will collect their data from the gaming world and use it for advertising on the social network. 
Facebook made an update to Oculus <laughs> privacy policies <laughs> on Thursday of this week, describing how it plans to track players in the virtual world and incorporate that activity into the company's broader understanding of users. ironic whom they're calling the users Facebook will now use information about your oculus activity like which apps you use to help provide these new social features and more relevant content including ads oculus wrote in a blog post those recommendations could include oculus events you might like to attend or ads for VR apps available on the oculus store unquote Sounds so cool, doesn't it? Facebook bought Oculus five years ago for two and a half billion and has developed the gaming and entertaining entertainment platform into one of the pillars of its business. It sees virtual reality as one of its most fertile areas for growth. Just need a little more manure. Uh, excuse me. The new policies illuminate how Facebook leverages all parts of its platform for a data advantage. In virtual reality, there are extensive ways to mine consumer insights, according to the data policies. Oculus collects information about how users interact with people, games, and apps. It can incorporate in-app purchases into its profiles of users, for example. I think they're the used, but it collects information from voice commands issued in Oculus, the policies say. It also collects location information. The activity on Oculus can help refine advertising on Facebook's related properties, and it also helps the social network tailor its services. It's just a little tailoring. Quarter inch here. Just a little dart there. Quote, Facebook will use your Oculus account information and information about your use of Oculus products to provide, personalize, and improve Facebook company products, including to personalize the ads you see on and off Facebook company products. Unquote the blog post. That's right. Their ads will follow you off Oculus and off Facebook. Have you thanked them yet? There is an option to create an Oculus account without linking it to Facebook. If you choose not to log into Facebook on Oculus, we won't share data with Facebook to allow third parties to target advertisements to you based on your use of the Oculus platform. Unquote. Try to find the way to do that. It'll be fun. Always more fun when I read the trades for you. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now we've uh, had a week where we really got to see an Inspector General in action. 
the inspector general who testified on Wednesday before the Senate Judiciary Committee, the inspector general from the Justice Department. But here is news from another one. The inspector general of the Department of Energy. He downgraded the performance assessment of the contractor, Bechtel, who's building Hanford's $17 billion vitrification plant. That's the plant that's supposed to uh, take all this leftover stuff from nuclear weapon building at Hanford during the Cold War and uh, turn it into some kind of glass. Why is he uh, downgrading its performance assessment? Because of ongoing criminal and civil investigations is all. An official assessing the performance of the contractor, Bechtel National, said the company would not be recommended for similar, similar work in the future, given its performance, according to the Inspector General's report to Congress. He said it was Bechtel's performance rating in 2018 and early 2019 that was downgraded as a result of the ongoing criminal and civil investigations. The nature of the investigations which are being coordinated with the Department of Justice has not been made public. Hmm. However, the DOJ did tell vitrification plant workers in 2017 to preserve all information and emails regarding charging for labor, recording time, worked overtime, and related matters. Those emailed instructions came after the Justice Department reached settlements with the two most recent Hanford tank farm contractors over allegations of time card fraud. That investigation continued over seven years. The contractors denied wrongdoing. Because of the Bechtel investigations, the Department of Energy at Hanford officials issued the downgraded performance assessment ratings for the period that ended earlier this year. The Department of Energy declined to make public its document with the the ratings, saying it was, quote, business-sensitive. What isn't? And finally, ladies and gentlemen, a little news about Dominion. That's what we got. We, they gave it to us. We're using it. More than a dozen species of small whales and dolphins are headed toward extinction, according to a new study. The main reason, modern fishing nets, which trap and kill hundreds of thousands of the animals every year. Small cetaceans lived alongside human fishers successfully for thousands of years in coastal waters, estuaries, and rivers. Then after World War II, fishers began to replace their cotton and hemp nets with less expensive and more durable synthetic ones. These so-called gill nets, according to Science, the magazine, not the uh, pursuit, don't require expensive equipment or large vessels, making them especially attractive to small-scale fishers worldwide. But cetaceans as well as other marine mammals, and sea turtles cannot bite through the nets if caught in them as they could with the cotton nets. Conservationists have tried for at least 30 years to develop nets that the animals could avoid or easily escape. They have yet to come up with a good solution. They've also urged governments to enact strict regulations and outright bans on the use of gill nets. These are typically difficult to enforce. So now 13 small cetacean species are nearing extinctions, primarily because of these nets, according to a report in Endangered Species Research. I read it for the pictures. Dominion. We got it. 
ladies and gentlemen, the tip of the, sh the show chapeau to Craig Wicklock, who wrote the entire series in the Washington Post on the Afghanistan papers. It is well worth a read on a Sunday afternoon or evening. And of course, to uh, the lawyers who stood behind him as he sued and filed Freedom of Information Act requests to make the interviews public, and to the management that paid for the lawyers. And to Bidler Show Chapeau, to the San Diego desk, and to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, playlist of the music heard here on, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts on the most corrupt cotton we could find, all at harryshearer.com. According to the polling, this program returns next week at the same time on the radio and on your audio device of choice whenever the heck you want it. And it'd be just like not talking to pollsters if you'd agree to join with me then. But you already, thank you very much, uh huh. The show comes to you from Sensory of Progress Production. There's more than one production. Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network. So long from the Crescent City. <laughs>